anything. You never know what's going to happen once you get started. So, Hey, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick. I'm the lead pastor here. Great to have you with us here at UPC. Let me uh, dive in a little bit about what we're doing. Um, so this time in our service, if you're unfamiliar with church at all, my guess is you're still probably familiar with this time, or at least what this is uh, caricatured as, right? We call this Christian preaching. Uh, Christian preaching uh, can come in many forms, but the ways in which I think it's most helpful is the, the point of it is to take um, the, the Word of God, how we understand the Bible, Scripture, to, to kind of uh, teach and explain it, but to do so in such a way that isn't just a, a lecture, but is, is a way in which we are trying to um, help us understand that God's Word is not something that's simply an archaic piece of antiquity, but something that's living and active and active in our lives. And the way that we do that primarily is through something called expository preaching. There's lots of different kinds of preaching. Um, there's topical stuff. There's, there's um, stuff that's more textual. Expository is where you kind of walk through uh, a passage of the Bible. Some of you are familiar with preaching that's really more stories than anything else, if we're being honest, right? Uh, here, though, what we're looking to do, because quite frankly, I'm not interested in it and neither should you be, uh, the opinions of whoever's up here, me being the most common one, those opinions don't really matter much. What we're interested in is what God has to say to us, and so that's what we're doing. This morning we're doing that in uh, 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, so if you have a Bible somewhere in front of you, whether it's in your hands or there's one under your seat or in the seat back in front of you, or somewhere around you, there's a Bible. Go ahead and turn in it, 1 Peter chapter 2, that's in the New Testament, towards the end of the New Testament. What we are doing over the course of the last several weeks, and we still have a few weeks more, we'll do it right up until Advent, is looking at what it means to reimagine church. We've looked at the mission of the church, we've looked at uh, what the, the practices of the church. We've looked at leadership in the church, and now we're looking at what the community is supposed to be like, and to give the first kind of intro into that, we're turning to these words from Peter. So if you have that passage in front of you, or if not, go ahead and stand in honor of God's word. It's our habit here. I'm reading verses 4 down through 12 in chapter 2. As you come to him, it's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for, for this time. I thank you for it because I know that I need it in my soul. I know my friends need it as well. We need to hear from you. We need you to reset our hearts, to realign our loves, to restore our sanity, to remind us of reality, and to form us we are powerless to do so. But we look to you and we trust you. We do believe. 
We, we ask that you'd help the unbelief that resides. And we pray that you would use this time for your glory's sake to form us more into the image of Jesus, to form us into a beautiful community. We can't do that on our own. So we rest on you, depend on you, and do so with joy, trusting that that's what you've made us for. So now open our hearts, our ears, our eyes, our minds, that all we see, hear, receive, and understand is Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. Have a seat. So in uh, 2009, many of you know this, but in, in 2009, I, uh, before I, long before I came here, I planted a church. And when I was doing that, um, the buzzword in the Christian world was community. People wanted community. Made for community, looking for community, and like every young and rather arrogant man, I disregarded all of it. After all, I had good theology, a sharp mind, and I thought, not a bad method of communicating all of that. You see, at that point in my life, I'd gone to church, I'd been a part of churches, at least in my mind, and, and I, well, no, I had been a part of churches, but at least in my mind, I'd been a part of those churches primarily for the content, right? People were fine, but teaching is what mattered. But, and this hit home rather quickly, church isn't about a lecture, it's about a people. You know, when I, when I sit and I talk with people and they tell me their bad experiences in church, it was more often than not bad experiences with people. When I saw lives transformed, and I did, it was because of other people. As much as I wanted this to be about how awesome I was, it wasn't. So what is this community that we call the church supposed to be like? What why does it, and, and frankly, why does it, why does it seem so stinking powerful, both for the good and for the bad? Well, that's what Peter's t- taking us through this morning, and what we're going to see this morning, and as always, there's an outline in there. I want to jump right in there. There's so much to get to. So if, if you're unfamiliar with this particular book, or, or the Bible in general, or even the guy who wrote it, so this this book, uh, is a, it's a letter. Most of the churches, most of the individual sections of the Bible we call books, but really, they're, they're really letters, or uh, at least in the New Testament, they're, they're small, so calling them a book seems a little self-aggrandizing. But it, it, this was written by Peter. Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. If, you, if you're an impulsive person, or, or you tend to be uh, attracted to a, impulsive people, you would have loved Peter. Peter, um, Peter was always the first to talk uh, not always the first to say something intelligent, but always the first to speak. I love Peter because I can relate to Peter so well. Um, you know, he's, he's the guy who's famous for denying Jesus three times, and then three times being restored to him. He's, the, he's also famous for, for the one that, that Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, right? So, so Peter, Peter has, has both um, like a really important place in our faith and also some really, really high-profile failures, which seems to be the way the Bible works in general, except with Jesus. So that's Peter, and he's writing to Christians in a region, right? Not a city. Like if you look at verse two or verses one and two, and they're like, he's he's writing to a region. That region would have been in modern-day Turkey. Um, it was one of the places where the church uh, in, the, in the first century had kind of like exploded. There was lots of stuff, uh, lots of people coming to Jesus there. And so there's a bunch going on in this letter. But in this section, Peter is specifically talking about being the church, what it means to be this new community. And he does so with a few different metaphors that if you're familiar with the Bible will sound familiar, but if you're not, make no sense whatsoever, okay? So let's jump in. Like look down at verses four and five. He, he, he begins it with this. As you, as you, you you Christians, come to him, that's Jesus, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual 
house. Now, when he talks about the living stone, that is talking about Jesus, and we'll get to more of that in a second, because he especially wants to highlight this whole rejected by men and chosen by God stuff. But what I want to hit here in particular is this concept in verse 5 of being built into a spiritual house. Now, for us, that sounds really sweet, doesn't it? Jesus meets HGTV. This is awesome. I'm a little spiritual house. Isn't this, this is fantastic? But, but to a Jewish person or someone who was, who kind of had, 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 who was really familiar with the Old Testament, there's only one spiritual house, and that's the temple. Right? They, that was how you understood the, the temple. It was a spiritual house. It was a house for the spirit. It was that. And so th- this is why he mentions being a holy priesthood. And we're going to get to that in a second, offering spiritual sacrifice. And we'll get to all that. But here's the problem. You and I have no idea why this matters. Because temples to us are these weird, archaic things that mainly are things you go look at because they're old and decrepit. Like, like uh, you know, you go to Greece or to Rome and you see temples, right? You go to um, India, like there are temples. And so temples to us are, are weird. They don't really make sense. So why would he even bring this up? Well, we don't have time to fully kind of flesh out what the, the themes of the entire Bible when it comes to the temple. But let me just say this. In the Old Testament, there are two main places, right, where, where God's kind of spirit dwells amongst his people. The first is this, this tent that they called the tabernacle, okay? When you hear tabernacle, it really just means tent, and it was this um, kind of like a portable temple that would go around with God's people when they were living portably, right? They were, they were wandering in the wilderness, and so God went with them, and he dwelt in this kind of place. And then when they, when they made it into the land, conquered the land after, after um, David's kingship, then his son Solomon builds a, a temple. And so there, there are these two places um, in the Old Testament where you had God's presence. And there was in, both of those were intended to be a picture of another place, the Garden of Eden, that's why you'd have all of this imagery, and I know all of you have spent your quiet times reading how the, the tabernacle was de- decorated, right? Because it's so meaningful for your everyday lives. But in fact, like, as, as you go into it and you look at how the temple was decorated and the tabernacle was decorated and the designs that went into it, it was all very gardenish. Trees, fruit, uh, all of these things were meant to kind of draw the eyes back to the garden. Well, why the garden? Because it was in the garden that we were designed to live with God. The garden was the place where God walked in the cool of the day, where heaven and earth kind of met, and the tabernacle and later the temple were meant to be that. You see, we understand a temple in our kind of ways. We understand it the way that pagan religions do. A temple is a place where you go to serve the deity, right? It's where you go, and like literally in the pagan world, they would go and they would feed the god or goddess. You would feed them. You would bring them food, and you'd sit it out for them, and then you'd leave it there until it rotted. So they're not good eaters, but you would, you would bring them there, and you bring the food there, and you were meant to do that, and the priests, and the, their, their job was to figure out what, what was, why the God was upset with you, and to help you do what you needed to do to make things right, but that is not the way uh, temple, the temple was to, to work in the Old Testament. It's not that at all. In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God's special presence was. Yes, Jewish people, they believe the Bible just like we do. And they knew that God was everywhere too, right? He's omnipresent. And yet, in the temple, there was something special there. He was in a special way there that he wasn't there everywhere else. It was a place you would go to get your sins forgiven, right? You need atonement, you go to the temple. There was sacrifice made. It was not only the place you'd go to get your sins forgiven, it was the place you'd go to work out your differences with your neighbors, Right? Brad and I have a problem with, it, with each other. Brad's mad at me for something. We go to the temple. We offer, uh, we, we work it out. The priest helps us mediate between us, and, and we work it out, and we make an offering called a fellowship offering, and then we sit down over a meal, and we're reconciled. Poof. The temple was also the place that if you were alienated from the community for any reason, that's where you went to be included again. Right? Some, of you are, some of you are familiar with the fact that like the Old Testament had this entire book called Leviticus that's all about, it talks about clean and unclean, and most of us are like, uh, it's where we all get hung up on our read through the Bible in a year thing. 
We all stop at Leviticus, so just stop it denying it. You stop there too, and you skipped over it, okay? But that's where we stop, and we get hung up because we have this clean and unclean thing. But the entire purpose of the clean and unclean thing is not about morality. It's about alienation and return. It's about exclusion and inclusion, right? Mildew is not a moral issue. Sorry, clean people. Like, it's not a moral issue. But it is an unclean issue in that category. And so that would be something that would, if there was a problem in your home, or, or frankly, there's some, there was always something. There was always something going on in your life. You could not, as, an, as a human being, make it through life without at some moment, and probably on a regular basis, being unclean. And so you would be excluded for a time from the community, and when you, it was time to come back, when, when it was time to return, it, you went to the temple. It was the priest who helped do that. Okay? That's what the temple was. In other words, the, the temple is this thing that is kind of the center of life where it is, it is, it is where God dwells, my sins are forgiven, where, where I'm restored to the community I was made for. And so the temple is this huge deal. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus begins taking all of those things that the temple was about, and he starts pulling them into him. Did you notice that? He starts telling people that they're forgiven. People go, who can forgive sins but God alone? What? And then we all think like, oh, they're really mad because he's claiming to be God. Now, what they're mad about is that he's not doing it where he's supposed to be doing it. He's supposed to be doing it at the temple. And he's going, there's something bigger than the temple is here, friends. He starts cleansing lepers and telling them they can go back into, into individual community again. Like he starts restoring relationships between people. He starts pulling all of these things that were the temple and he starts to put it putting all of it on him. And then, of course, he's famous for saying, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three. Oh, and by the way, he's the very presence of God in our midst. He is everything that the temple was meant to be. And then, and then, of course, we have this weird thing that Peter says right here. He says, as you come to this guy, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter is saying, this church, this is what you are. You are the temple of God, not the building. You, gathered collectively. This is what this community is supposed to be, a temple of the living God where, where we come and where others can come and experience the forgiveness of sins. Where they can come and experience reconciliation. Where they can come and be included back into a community where they've been feeling only alienation and exclusion. But listen, I get it, right? Like some of you are, maybe you're not a Christian, you're looking around, you're like, come on, man. Look at these people. Like, I know, right? Like, that's, yeah. And some of you, uh, you, you are a Christian, that's not your experience, and you're thinking, that sounds good, Rick, but I know, right? Listen, even if you're not at a place where you can believe that that's true, that what Peter's saying here is true, you're like, man, all this sounds really good, but I just, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I can believe that. Even if you're not at a place where you could believe it's true, wouldn't you really want it to be? Doesn't it, wouldn't it just be amazing if there was a place where in the gathering of God's people you got to experience God's presence in a special way? Wouldn't it be amazing if there was this place where you could receive forgiveness and really believe that you got it? Where you could experience reconciliation? In short, like, where you could actually taste, get a taste for the world as it was meant to be? Wouldn't that be awesome? But how is it possible to build such a thing, especially out of yahoos like us, right? Well, that's where Peter turns and as he's coming back to this living stone rejected but chosen. Look down at verses 6 to 8, right? 
So most of your Bibles, if, if you have a Bible out, most of your Bibles will have these kind of verses kind of offset in some way, shape, or form. And that's because Peter is quoting out of several different places, okay? So the first one is from Isaiah 28, then he quotes from Psalm 118, and then again from Isaiah 8. And there's, there's a ton of nuance to get here, but for our purposes, Peter's point, okay, is to note that, the, that we are living stones... And the entire reason that we are living stones is because we are connected to the living stone, right? So uh, some of you will be familiar with this because I talk about this a good bit. But when you place your faith in Jesus, right, we, we, we are united to him. What becomes true, what's true of him becomes true of us. We are united to him. And so all of these awesome things that were connected to Jesus, how is that possible that it could be about us? Because we are united to Jesus so that what, becomes, what is true of him becomes true of us us. He is the temple, and then now as we come united, because we are united in him, we are the temple. And if it is true at all of us, it isn't because we are just a really good church. If that is true of this church at all, it is only true because it is true of Jesus, and we are his body. And that is why Peter gets to verses 7 and 8. Okay, verses 7 and 8, that whole like, so the honor is for you to believe, but for those who don't believe. And he does this because your place in the spiritual house, your place in this temple, is entirely dependent on what you do with Jesus. It's entirely dependent on that. And this is one of the things that I've, as I've talked with folks who struggle with doubts and questions about Christianity, it's one of the things that drives people nuts about Christianity in general, and it's, it's the whole fixation on Jesus. Not that we like Jesus, because it seems like everyone kind of likes Jesus. It's not that the way, like, I, I've, not, I've yet to met someone, maybe you're this person, you can come prove me wrong afterwards, but I've never met someone who's just like, you know that Jesus guy, he was just a jerk. Like, I'm not really big on him. Like, almost everyone thinks, oh, he was a good guy, I want to claim him for our particular way of doing things, but this fixation on Jesus like, why does it all have to be about him? Like, you know, you, maybe you're thinking this, or maybe you've thought this, like, Rick, I, I've heard this a bunch. Like, Rick, what about the really good people? Well, it has nothing to do with being good. See, Christianity isn't about how good you are. Christianity isn't about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. It's about what you decide to do about Jesus. What will you do with him? Either he did what he said he did, and he did what the Bible says he did, and you trust it, or he didn't. Right? He, is he God incarnate, come to live perfectly in your place, which you couldn't do, die sacrificially for you, which you deserved, and then rise victoriously from the dead, which you've never seen happen before, or is he some dude who said some things and got himself killed? Okay, everything depends on what you do with that question. And, and I'm going to say this, like, don't gloss too quickly over that. Because when it talks about people stumbling over Jesus... It's not simply talking about people stumbling over Jesus because they don't believe in supernatural things, right? I know that's what we tend to think, especially if you've been in the church a long time, you tend to think, oh, you stumble over Jesus because you couldn't accept that he was actually God incarnate. Well, no, I mean, yes, but no. Sometimes it's just because you're just not willing to lay your life on it. Because you can know an awful lot about Jesus, Believe a lot of propositions about Jesus and still reject Jesus. Because for some of us, it's hard because we've been the good kid and we don't want to accept that our goodness missed the mark. That we need Jesus' righteousness because ours couldn't be good enough. We don't like that. For others of us, though, we, we don't trust that God's really that good and would deal with all of my junk without me having to clean myself up. Jesus is a stumbling block because he confronts both our pride and our fear. He, he answers, he, he, he deals with our doubt of, I don't think I'm that bad, and the doubt of, I don't think God can be that good. Stumbling over Jesus is not just simply because I'm not sure that all the stuff happened. Sometimes it's, I'm not sure I want to trust that much. What the church is, is solely because of our union, our connection with Jesus, and what makes this community special is all about Jesus, and so your place in it is all about what you do with Jesus, okay? But Peter's not done scouring the Old Testament for ways to talk about the church. Look down at verses 9 and 10. He says this, 
but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Like all of these things, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, especially the first couple of books, like all of these things sound familiar to you, right? Like they, they just pop out. All these are descriptors uh, of ways that God has spoken about his, what we call his covenant people, okay? So let me, let me dive into that. First, chosen race. Now, anytime we in America uh, put the word race after anything, it becomes triggering and very difficult for us to hear correctly. So we need to hear what that means. That does not mean um, uh, racial in the way that we do, right? Something that has to do with skin color or ethnicity. It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about a family at that point. But, but probably the bigger end of this is the, that first word, chosen. This is a concept that, I, that some of us are not very big on, <laughs> this thing called election. But election is a big deal in the Bible. And I know that as soon as you say that word election or chosen or, or, um, or have mercy, uh, predestination, like if I were to do something like that, it just like everyone's being stiff like, oh no, what's about to happen? Um, but listen, let me, let me make it a little simpler. Here's why this is a big deal in the Bible. Genesis chapter 12 is pretty clear that there was this guy named Abraham, or his name was Abram at the time, and he wasn't seeking God. And he just kind of, God just kind of said, you're with me now. Pack up your stuff and move. That must have been an interesting conversation, by the way. Um, And he did. And story after story in the Old Testament is of God working in the lives of individuals Certainly, but, but then marking himself, marking out for himself a people of his own. And, and these folks don't ever seem to be looking for him, right? Moses was looking for a sheep. He found a bush that was on fire that wouldn't stop burning, right? He wasn't looking for God. God was chasing after him. These things happen. They happen over and over and over again. And God is working in the lives of individuals to make himself for a people. There, this guy named Isaac had two boys, Jacob and Esau. Chose one of them. It, the prophet Jeremiah. You get the prophet Jeremiah who, who uh, God basically tells him, like, I had you picked out from the womb to do this work. I had that. I had this for you. Right? Uh, God comes to us. The foundation of our identity in this community is as a people that God has chosen out of his vast mercy. We'd go on, but that's not what this whole passage is about, Okay. The next thing he says is a royal priesthood. Now, there's a lot to this. As much as we don't get temples, and maybe because we don't get temples, we really don't get priests. Right? We don't understand them. Because, again, in the pagan world, a priest is someone who serves the deity. They're there for the deity. They're there for the god or the goddess. They, they, they do things that will make them happy, and when they're upset with individuals, then you go to the priest, they discern why it is that they're upset with you, and then they do something or tell you to do something to make it better. That's what they do. Their service is for the god, right? That is not a priest in the Bible, Priest in the Bible, the best way to describe what a priest does in the Bible is they are agents of reconciliation. That's what they do. They hold their hands out to two alienated parties and they help to bring them together. Right? So that's what they do in, in the scriptures with us and our relationship with God. They help bring us together. They, they do it with one another. Again, if I had, a, like me and Brad and our problem, we had to go to the priest and he helps to bring us together. They are agents of reconciliation. That is their job, to help bring about reconciliation in the world, okay? So you're a royal priesthood. We're gonna, get, we're gonna pull all these strings together in a minute, so just keep, keep with me. A holy nation, what does that mean? It means a community set apart, okay? Most of us tend to believe, if you've been in the church, that when you hear the word holy, you think moral, right? Here's the problem with that. In the temple and in the tabernacle, there were spoons that were holy. And the last I checked, 
I have yet to meet an immoral spoon, okay? Like, and, and I've, I've, dirty, yes. Immoral, no, right? Okay, so holiness, does it include moral perfection? Yes. Is that the extent of its description? No, it means set apart. It means set apart. It means different. When God says, be holy as I am holy, he doesn't just mean be morally good as I am morally good. He means be different like me. Be set apart like me. Okay? So when we're talking about a holy nation, we're not just simply talking about a really good group of people. We're talking about a people who are utterly different. They're utterly different. Then he says this thing as we come down a little bit further that you once were not a people, but now you are God's people once you hadn't received mercy. That comes from the book of Hosea. Um, and that's, that's how God talked about his people after he had forgiven their sins and restored them to himself. So all of these ways are ways that God has talked about his people, about Abraham's family. Now here's the key and here's the kicker. Peter is now using all of these ways to talk about a group of people that extends way beyond Abraham's genetics, right? Now, God seems to have a sense of humor that this would be the passage that we'd talk about um, this week, and it would have to touch on this subject, which is right now something that is kind of everywhere because of what's going on in a certain part of the world. So I'm going to speak to it. I know I'm not going to be exhaustive of it, but we need to talk about it because it's talked about here. If you have questions, you can come talk to me. Or you can um, email or call the office. I'm off next week, but Steve would love to take any of these. Okay? Yeah, it would be really good practice for ordination exams. All right. Um, here's the thing, guys. God does not have two peoples. He does not have one natural people and one spiritual people. Paul says in Galatians, the book of Galatians, we preached that, remember that? Um, if you were here, we, we preached through Galatians, that it is that those who are of the faith of Abraham who are his offspring. Right? In Romans, Paul says it again. And Paul's saying this as like the, the Jewish of Jewish guys. Okay, And he says that at one point. He's like, I am the Jew of Jews. I'm, I am, I'm it. And he is saying that not everyone who is of Israel is Israel. That, not every, that it has to do with your reckoned by faith. That he says later in that letter, he's like, there's this one tree, this, and he calls it an olive tree. They had those, lots of those. I've never seen one, but I'll trust him. There's this olive tree that they call Israel. It's the Israel of God. And there were some branches that grew up in that tree that were broken off. And there were others that were wild olives like us. And they got grafted on, but there's one tree. One tree. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's using the exact same kind of argument. He's using metaphors that were said of God's people in the Old Testament. And he's saying, you, we're not two different groups. That's us. That's us. We didn't replace them. No. We are them. We're part of them. Now, like I said, more could be said, but that needs to be said for this, okay? Now, here's the thing as we get to chosen and what it means to be chosen for. Here's the thing about being a chosen people. We talk about being a chosen people, talk about holy nation. Oh, sounds all good, right? God chose me. It's awesome, and it is awesome. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nation set apart. I'm like, a, I'm like one of the, I, I got picked for the team. Yes, all of this is great. There is privilege. But in the Bible, election is really, most importantly, about vocation. It's about a job. See, in the Bible, being chosen comes with a responsibility. To use, to use churchy terms, you, you aren't just saved from something. You are saved for something. And that's what Peter's trying to get at here. Because now as soon as I say that, so many of us, when I, say, when I say you're saved for something, we think personal piety. And that's true, yes. Like, I'm supposed to be uh, walking with Jesus, and I'm supposed to grow in my understanding of him and become morally better and better and better. And yes, you are right, but not complete. 
And so we have to keep thinking, okay, what, is, what does this mean? It's not just about that kind of tra- changed life. So we go further, right? I mean, even here in verse 9, he says, he says that we are a chosen race so that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. So that's great. So we're saved for also this kind of talking about how great God is. Yes, also true, but not complete. To get at what the job is, we have to get at this priesthood thing. Again, remember, the role in the Old Testament. If you, if you had a town, and you lived in a town, and there was this guy who lived there who was of the tribe of Levi, right? The Levites. Levites were the priestly caste. And the big thing about the Levites was they didn't get land like everyone else, right? They, everyone else got land they could work and make money on. The Levites didn't. Um, but what the Levites would do and the priests would do is that they would affect reconciliation amongst God's people. But they were just part of that, right? They were just, it wasn't everybody, it was just this one little tribe is in here. And that one tribe, that's their job to affect reconciliation amongst the tribe of Judah or amongst the tribe of Benjamin or, you know, name it, Simeon, like all of those. They're, they're, they're affecting reconciliation. But God is saying, but, but you're a, an entire nation of these folks. Okay, so who... Does the, if, if the individual Levites are doing reconciliation within the nation, what does the, who does the nation work with? Who are they looking to see reconciled? The answer is the world. They're there for the world. They're supposed to be agents of reconciliation in the world. The church is a community with great privilege. It is insane that God would pick who he picks. I don't get it. I don't get it. As a matter of fact, Paul's even going to tell us in in one of his letters that sometimes he picks who he picks just to show how he's not like everybody else. He picks the weak things to shame the strong. He picks the the things that are the, the nothings to shame the somethings. Like he does things that no one would imagine. It's an amazing privilege to have that. To be rescued from our sin and brokenness by God, completely out of his grace and mercy, nothing merited from us. It's amazing. And now we are to be a community that embodies that to the world. That is our vocation. We are meant to be holding out our arms between our living God and the world that is unreconciled from him and trying to, and doing everything in our power to affect that reconciliation. So in a sense, it's no different than the temple image. Like, we're called to embody the very character, compassion, and constancy of our God in the world and for the world. We are conformed to his character to show the world who he is. We, we proclaim his excellencies to, how, to tell how great he is, yes. And to reach out our hands to bring unreconciled parties together because that is what he does. I know this is weird to think about, but this is a community that exists for everyone that is not yet part of it. That's who we're for. But Peter's still isn't done. He pulls in yet another image from the Old Testament. Look down at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All right, so what is this? Well, I think we've talked about exile in here, but we're going to do it again. The exile and the idea of exile is all over the place in the Old Testament. From the first story in the garden, right? Adam and Eve, they blow it. They blow it for everybody. They're exiled from the garden. Then, you know, you have the sojourn of, of kind of Abraham's family in Egypt. You have the exile of God's people from the land of Canaan in, in 586 BC. You know, we talked about that in Jeremiah's letter to the exile a couple of months ago. But What Peter is bringing out is, no matter the nation of your birth, okay, no matter the nation of your birth, you as a Christian now live in a form of exile. To be in exile means that this country isn't your home. Now, as soon as I say that, there's a lot of us in this room who go, that's right, Rick, my home is heaven. I'm made for heaven. No, not exactly. 
one of my former teachers said, heaven is, is a bus stop, not the destination. The goal is the new creation where God dwells with us here and our bodies are made new. That's the home that we're for. Uh, this fourth century church father named St. Augustine wrote this amazing book called The City of God. And he described Christians in that as being citizens of two cities, the city of man and the city of God. And this is exactly what Peter's talking about. That no matter where you're from and no matter where you live now, we as Christians are never fully at home, right? So, so we're also a community that isn't quite at home. And part of that, P- Peter says here, part of being sojourners and exiles, part of being kind of resident aliens in, in this place is to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Now, here's what that means. Peter is basically telling us that, that everything that he's called us to Right? Being that a- those agents of reconciliation, being the temple of God, being all that stuff, that all of those things are completely unnatural. It's like it doesn't seem natural to us at all. Instead, he has to call us to abstain from what he calls the passions of the flesh. And when I say passions of the flesh, nearly everyone in this room thinks sexually. Right? I don't know why that is. Well, I do. There's some cultural baggage there, but but that is part of what the Bible's saying, but not all of it, right? The flesh is the New Testament's way of talking about our nature that is bent away from God, right? That all of us now, as we are born, by nature are bent away from God, trying to seek independence from him. And the passions of the flesh are the over-desires of independence, the over-desires of being that nature. It is every desire that seeks to be independent of God, whether we do that for a status, for security, or for satisfaction. It is every nudge that is independent of him so yeah that the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul could find their expression in your sexuality absolutely it can it could also find its expression in greed or control or codependency or self-righteousness i mean really anything christians are really good at turning everything into sin okay we're really good at that So Peter is saying, as those whose true home is run by different principles, live by those principles. That the independence that that you are going to want to live in because it's natural to you, and oh, by the way, everyone around you is living by those principles. Instead, we need you to to live by a different set, not the ones of the place you're currently living. In other words, just because you live in a country and are surrounded by people who use their money to provide a status for them or give them satisfaction, you, church, live differently. Abstain from that because you know those things can't give you what they think those things give them. Right? But here's the problem, and here's the problem that he gets to in verse 12, that when you do that, when you live by the values of a different country, then you're going to be called out and you're going to be seen as weird. (laughs) Look down at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. A couple things I want to point out this. First, he says to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. See, I think sometimes Christians believe, we, we tend to believe that if, if we can... Um, make ourselves be really, really good, really good according to our definition, then people will see how good we are and will we'll think that's great. Like, like they'll, they'll think, wow, they don't watch rated R movies. They're really good. And that, that somehow will make a, a difference. But this word that he uses is a great word because it's translated here honorable, but more often than not when it's used, especially when it's used in the Old Testament, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it means beautiful. It means beautiful. Now here's the thing. I think that's an important word because you and I can argue truth a lot. Right? Man, we can argue that up and down. We can argue right and wrong all day long. You know what is really hard to argue with? Beauty. I mean, yes, okay, so you can go to an art museum and we can argue about whether or not the paint splatters on the canvas is art or just random. But 
if we're standing in the midst of a stunning sunset, it's really doubtful that you're going to go, yeah, it's, it's just all right for me. You know, like, it's just, nah. Yeah, it's kind of hideous. I really like it better. When, like, no, you're going to be impacted by the beauty of it. And so in other words, he's saying live beautifully among those who don't believe. What does that mean? It means keep your promises. It means be kind and generous. It means show compassion the way you would want people to show compassion on you. It means just love, love people, which I know that, well, see, I just said that word. I said that word, and now I'm going to have to spend time explaining what I mean by that because we all have different definitions of that. It means... So let me pause. Not love. Well, yes, love. But here's what it means. It, it means working for the flourishing of another and not always seeking for yourself. So Peter's point is like this. like Live in a beautiful way. And why? Well, because, and this is the second thing. He says, when they call you an evildoer. This is important. He does not say if. He says when. Let me be clear. I know most of us um, really enjoy uh, reading early church history, so I know this is going to be something that everyone already knows. But bear with me. One of the things that got people in trouble in the early church, I'm going to step on somebody's toes. It's okay. Uh, one of the things that got people in trouble in the early church was that Romans saw Christians as bad citizens. They were unpatriotic. They were not okay. They were against the civil society. Why? Because they did not worship the emperor. And by worship, don't, don't listen. Early Romans were not like, oh, Caesar. They lit a piece of incense. May Caesar live. Right? And the Christians went, I can't do that, man. They're like, man, I don't understand why anyone would have a problem with that. Is it that hard to believe that a society would have certain religious rituals or, or rituals that, would, that could be seen as religious to anyone else that are all about being good citizens and having a good patriotic life? My boys' homecoming game was Friday. They won, by the way, crushed them. It was awesome. You know at the beginning of that game, you know what they did? There's a flag at one end of the stadium. Everyone stood up. We all turned. And they sang a song. And a lot of people in the crowd sang the song with them. What would you think of someone who sat down? Now, I know I'm stepping on a landmine here. What would you think? A lot of us would think, but they don't love, they don't love America? They don't care about what, what it took to get here. They don't, da, 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 da. They're bad citizens. That is what people thought of Christians. That's what people thought of Christians. Because they wouldn't go along with the normal civic religion. This is what our civic religion is. This is what we do. This is what makes a good citizen. This is what we do. Now, I'm not making a judgment on anything having to do with the flag or the anthem. I'm just giving it as an illustration. That's what they were like. And so it... it when they were seen as evildoers, the whole point was that then P Peter's like, if you live beautifully among them, they may go, you're a terrible citizen, then think, but wait a minute. But when my, when my household was sick, this is the person who came over and sat with us and nursed us to health, even though they were going to get sick too. Yeah, I know, I know that they, they're not good for civil society, but they were pretty good for me. Or they can go, you know, yeah, th this person, that's an evildoer. They don't like Caesar. Like, but you know, like, I mean, I collect the things. I know they pay their taxes. They pay them just like I do. They, they keep their promises. They, they sell good materials, and then they, they, they don't cheat anybody on the scales. Like, I mean, I don't get it. They don't, I don't know that they're an evildoer. You see, the way that works is you're going to be called that. 
If you live by, the, by, by the, the values of a different world, you're going to be called someone who's out of this world. Like, it's going to happen. That's not the point. The point is that that call on you can then be countered by the fact that, like, I know that they're not following this thing, but they do this and that I don't understand. And when Peter is saying that they will give praise to God on the day of visitation, what that means is they're going to go, there is no way that anyone could have been like this. I've known no one else who could be like this except for these people. And the only thing that makes them different is Jesus. It's the only thing that makes them different. Can you imagine that is the kind of community that you're a part of? Listen, the tragedy of many people's stories of church is that it's a community that functions pretty much like everyone, every other one does. We don't abstain from the passions of our flesh. We seek power over each other. We seek to use one another. We're self-righteous. We lack compassion when someone blows it. We do all the things. <laughs> we do. We do. And if we didn't, Peter wouldn't have to be telling us not to, (laughs) right? We do it. But what if we we could have a place marked out by true holiness? Not just moral purity, but by the kind of love and compassion that marks out God, right? Who looks on the lowly with compassion, who looks on people as sheep without a shepherd, not idiots who can't get their stuff together. What if we could have a place where we can live into the reality of being a spiritual house where we expect people to come who need their sins forgiven where we can welcome in the outcast and those that don't seem to belong because there's a place where I can belong and if I can belong anybody can belong what if we can live into that reality because we're connected to Jesus not because we're just a really good church because it's all about him. I think that would be a powerful thing. That would be something worth imagining. Would you pray with me? Lord, have mercy on us where we don't, gosh, where we don't live into that, into this, this vision that you have for us. Specifically, Lord, I pray that you would build UPC into a place where your presence is palpably felt, where we don't ever have to doubt whether or not your work is enough to forgive our sins, and where our alienation can be healed. If that's going to happen, Lord, it's going to be because you're working in our lives, because we are not up to that task. And so we ask that Jesus, you would, as the living stone, build us into the temple of the Holy God so that we might proclaim your excellencies and so that the world, when they call us an evildoer, might see something beautiful. We ask that you do all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's